Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Stand back and stand by. You may remember that line from former President Donald Trump during the presidential debates in 2020. Well, it's now part of the prosecution's sedition case against Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and four other members of the far-right group accused of leading the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. We have stormed the Capitol! Right on! Prosecutors say the Proud Boys were part of every critical breach on the day of the attack, from knocking down the first street barricades to smashing a window with a stolen police shield, letting the rioters into the building. And they're giving the jury plenty of visuals of the attack, showing videos shot by documentary filmmaker Nick Quested, who also testified at the January 6th committee hearings. For anyone that really didn't think that there was extreme violence on that day, um, I filmed it, I saw it, and was subject to it. The violence was real, and it was exceptionally powerful. Defense attorneys argue that the defendants are being made scapegoats and that evidence will show there was no plan by them to stop the transfer of power. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, tell us about the Proud Boys. Who are they? The Proud Boys were formed in 2016 by Vice Media co-founder Gavin McGinnis, who's a Canadian. The group is described as a far-right neo-fascist group that engages in political violence. While the actual membership number of members of the group is unknown, it's believed to be in the thousands. And the group has as many as 44 active chapters across the country. And it has a history of engaging in political violence. The first kind of prominent appearance of the Proud Boys on the national stage was the summer of 2017 during the Unite the Right rally in Charlotte, Virginia. One of the organizers of the event was a member of the Proud Boys. And then in uh, June 2018, the Proud Boys attended the Freedom and Courage Rally in Portland, Oregon, where they engaged in violent clashes with members of the uh, Black Lives Matter group and protesters. And then, of course, they were involved in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building. The attorney for Enrique Tarrio said they're basically a drinking club. The Proud Boys (laughs) aren't a sexist, racist, homophobic organization. Well, I think there's at least two countries that would beg to differ, and uh, one of those is Canada, and the other is New Zealand. And uh, the governments of both of those countries have designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization. And that designation carries substantial financial and economic consequences. The police can seize the property of the Proud Boys, you know, in their country, and banks can seize their assets, and they can be denied entry into the country. And then additionally, the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated them as a hate group. So they they have a reputation well beyond simply being a good old, you know, boys club. What's the prosecution's theory of the case? 
there are a number of charges that have been brought in the in the formal indictment against these five members of the Proud Boys. But the, the most important, the most significant is uh, the seditious conspiracy charge. And uh, that carries a 20-year sentence. And the government's theory is that the members of the Proud Boys engage in a conspiracy to prevent the execution of any law of the United States, specifically being the certification of the Electoral College votes that Congress was undertaking on January 6th prior to the attack on the, on the U.S. Capitol. What does the prosecution have to prove there? A couple of points. You know, one, it's been estimated that as as many as 100 members of the Proud Boys were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and participated either in planning, directing, or executing the attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it's the agreement, you know, it's the planning, it's a conspiracy. And, you know, the conspiracy charge does not require that each member of the conspiracy himself participated in acts of violence. It's enough if a member of the conspiracy, any member of the conspiracy, participated in acts of violence. Again, all the members of the conspiracy agreed, and they agreed to delay to prevent the counting of the electoral votes. And they did that with the use of force or violence. And so, again, any member of the conspiracy could have participated in the assault on the Capitol using force. But it's not necessary that every member of the conspiracy participated you know, by using force force in the attack on the Capitol. I think it's probably worth highlighting that, you know, one of the defendants is Dominic Pizzola, and we've seen literally, you know, multiple pictures of him using the stolen police riot shield and using it to break a window into the Capitol, and apparently that was the first entry points where the rioters entered into the Capitol building following Pizzola's lead. Does it make any difference that Tario wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th? He'd been arrested two days earlier for burning a Black Lives Matter flag, and so he was not in D.C. No, it it really doesn't matter because, again, this is a conspiracy charge. And uh, what's critical here, the critical element of conspiracy is the agreement. So the, it's the agreement between two or more individuals, you know, to violate U.S. law. And in this case, you know, the uh, the insurrection. And so he doesn't have to be present. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't actually himself have to be participating in the riot or in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It's enough that he agreed to participate in the planning, the directing, the organizing of the attack. Federal prosecutors just won a conviction of four of the Oath Keepers on seditious conspiracy charges on Monday. Is the prosecution's plan here sort of similar? It seems to me that the prosecution is following the same kind of blueprint of prosecution that they followed in the Oath Keepers trial. And so what we're going to see in terms of evidence being presented to the jury is going to be statements made by the various, you know, five members of the Proud Boys that are being prosecuted, statements that they made in text messages and other social media messages that demonstrated their intent 
government to attack the Capitol building to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. So they're going to be prosecuted based on their own words. And that was the case with the Oath Keepers. And then there's also some members of the Proud Boys previously convicted. They've entered a guilty plea. They've agreed to cooperate with the government. And they're going to testify at trial against the members of the Proud Boys. And we also saw that in the Oath Keepers prosecution. So that's going to be the critical evidence. It's going to be their own words used against them. It's going to be members of the Proud Boys that were on the inside that are going to testify as to what these five defendants intended and what they did with respect to the seditious conspiracy. And then lastly, it's going to be you know photos of them at the scene, breaking into the building, knocking down you know police barriers, perhaps even assaulting police officers. So I think that's going to be the crux of the prosecution's case. The prosecution also has text messages from an encrypted channel, which they set up, I think Terrio set up, called Ministry of Self-Defense. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So then the question is, well, why was it necessary to set up this encrypted messaging system of communication? And so obviously they did not want the FBI and law enforcement officers to be able to capture these messages to then be able to use them against them. And why? I mean, I think it demonstrates consciousness of guilt that they were engaged in wrongdoing. They knew that what they were doing was was criminal and prosecutable, and therefore they sought to conceal it from uh, federal law enforcement officers. Why do you think the judge allowed the prosecution to play that clip of former President Trump saying, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by? Well, it goes to the intent. You know, what was the intent and the purpose of the conspiracy? And one could argue that this statement and this apparent relationship or connection between former President Trump and the Proud Boys demonstrates that the Proud Boys were acting on behalf of President Trump and that they were, again, seeking to keep him in power and seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to President-elect Biden. And again, that goes to the heart and the purpose and the intent of the conspiracy. So I think this is evidence of that intent and that relationship between former President Trump and the Proud Boys. Some of the defense attorneys, including the attorney for Tario, are trying to blame Trump, saying Trump unleashed the mob that breached the Capitol. You know, I don't know that it's much of a defense, and I don't think that the defense statements are inconsistent with the prosecution's theory. So it could very well be that former President Trump unleashed this violent mob to attack the Capitol, but it could equally be the case that in doing so, the uh, members of the Proud Boys participated in that assault and helped organize and plan that assault, which is the basis of the seditious conspiracy charge. Before the riot, the FBI had placed informants in the Proud Boys, and now some of those informants are being called as witnesses by the defense who say they were privy to the Proud Boy chats and even marched alongside them. Is that a great help to the defense? 
Well, it'll be interesting to see how that testimony plays out. And so apparently the, the defense lawyers believe that these particular informants have evidence that's going to contradict the government's theory that they're involved in this planning to attack the U.S. Capitol. And it'll be interesting to see once those informants are on the witness stand exactly what evidence they possess and whether it's truly exculpatory or maybe there's some aspects of their of their testimony that's exculpatory but then other aspects that are incriminating with the statements about Trump and with the informants are some of the defense attorneys pointing in different directions you know sort of don't look here look there yeah well that's a common strategy by defense lawyers they want to distract the jury's attention they want to deflect and draw attention away from their clients to other individuals or to other participants or to other persons that may have been involved or have a motive to be involved in the criminal activity and uh, in my experience as a prosecutor for 9 years that tactic that strategy is is rarely effective and rarely successful. So uh, hopefully for their clients, they have something more, something beyond that as a strategy to defend their clients. I found this really interesting. This is according to the Wall Street Journal that some of the defendants offered to plead guilty to the obstruction count, which carries a 20-year max sentence, but prosecutors insisted that they plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting, too. I mean, but at the same time, prosecutors typically require, I mean, especially if they have a strong case, the prosecutors feel that they have a very strong case. They're not going to accept anything less than a guilty plea to the most serious charge. And uh, the fact that some other counts in the indictment carry the same maximum sentence doesn't mean that those are the most serious charges. Here, clearly, the seditious conspiracy charge is the most serious charge, and the prosecutors are holding out for a plea, guilty plea, to that charge. Now, if if the prosecutors thought that there were some weaknesses, uh, maybe there's some question about the credibility of some of their witnesses, yeah, then they might have some uh, motive and and, and interest in in agreeing to have the defendants plead to, the, to a lesser charge. But I think this demonstrates, again, the prosecutor's confidence in the, uh, in the government's case. Are the Proud Boys considered more threatening than the Oath Keepers or more dangerous? I think a couple of things. One, I think that their their membership is larger. As I stated, they, they're believed to have members in the the total numbers in the thousands, we don't know exactly how many, but in the thousands, have at least 40, you know, plus over 40 different chapters. So they appear to be uh, more organized. They appear to be uh, larger in number. They, they appear to be, again, a nationwide organization. And I think all of those factors could suggest, again, that they pose a greater threat to national security than perhaps the, uh, the Oath Keepers. Thanks, Jimmy. That's Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The Supreme Court is going to revisit a decades-old precedent that sets the standard for businesses to deny workers religious accommodation requests. The justices have agreed to reevaluate that legal test in a case involving a Christian letter carrier's religious objection to delivering packages for Amazon on Sundays. A divided Third Circuit affirmed a lower court ruling in favor of the U.S. Postal Service. But the court's conservative supermajority has resulted in a greater tendency to credit allegations of religious liberty violations, suggesting that a more employee-friendly interpretation of religious accommodation requirements is on the way. Joining me is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Hal, tell us what the standard is now for businesses denying workers religious accommodation requests. Title VII protects against discrimination on the basis of religion, just as it protects against discrimination on the basis of gender and race. But differently with respect to religion, Title VII also requires employers to make a reasonable accommodation to all religious practice of its employees, unless in so doing, the employer would face an undue burden. And this particular case questions the precedent of TWA versus Hardison where the court held that in order to assess what an undue burden is, the question is whether the employer faces more than a de minimis amount of cost in trying to accommodate the request, such as not having to work on Sunday, as in this case, or not having to wear a particular garb in the office, not wearing a yarmulke or not wearing a headscarf, uh, something along these lines. So what that means would be that if a court is satisfied that the employer has to pay overtime, hire additional personnel, or inconvenience other employees, that that would constitute more than a de minimis burden, and therefore the accommodation need not be made. So the case before the Supreme Court now will determine whether this 25-year-old president, TWA versus Hardison, articulated the standard too leniently and the fact there needs to be a heavier burden placed upon employers to go out of their way and try to arrange for an accommodation so that their employees can maintain their religious practices, whatever they are. So that's the first part of the case. But the second part is perhaps even more troubling because what the court has signaled that it wants to consider whether the impact on other employees can give rise to a undue burden. Because again, in the case, as in the Groff case, which is before the court, 
when a employee says, I can't work on Sunday. Well, somebody has to work on Sunday. And does that mean that an employer can take into account that there's seniority rights of other employees and they want to be home on Sunday? Or if they make everybody else work Sundays, they'll have less time with their family and the religious employee enjoys more time with family than the rest of the employees? Are these considerations that come within the contemplation of what an undue burden is? So this has a very important sort of overtones for the employer-employee relationship and whether the employer can take into account seniority rules, can take into account the fact that another employee has sick kids at home and so forth and so on. Until now, the Supreme Court has been reluctant to review the Hardison Standard, hasn't it? Uh, there have been challenges um, under Title VII, but this TWA versus Hardison Standard has been around for um, over 30 years. And individual justices, such as Gorsuch, um, Thomas, and Alito, in the past have called for reexamining the, the Hardison precedent. And so it's no surprise that they took this case. But the real issue, I don't think, is whether they keep partisan, because I think that the standard should be adjusted. But how far will the court go? And if the court says an employer can't pay attention to the impact on his other employees, that's going to put employers in a real bind. Well, the court is obviously taking the case to change the standard, right? And with this court, most likely to broaden it in favor of religious liberty. Unquestionably, the court is looking to broaden the individual religious right at at stake here. And the question is, to what extent will it put the burden on the employer to make that accommodation? Now, the court in the prior cases, particularly courts of appeals, have been clear that the employer doesn't have to accept the accommodation offered by the plaintiff, that as long as the employer finds a reasonable accommodation, the employer can pick and choose amongst those that satisfy that threshold. I don't think the court is going to reexamine that precedent, which I think is, is important. But I do think that the key here is if the court would come out and say, you know, we don't care about seniority rights, even if it's in a collective bargaining agreement, you have to accommodate this person's interest. It does elevate the interest of religious ability beyond collective bargaining, beyond seniority, beyond having sick kids at home. And that just would suggest a sort of a really distorted view, I think, of what Congress had in mind when it created Title VII. So this case involved a Christian letter carrier who objected to delivering packages for Amazon on Sundays. But in the case, the Postal Service showed that it offered instead to let him swap Sunday shifts with others and help to find someone for him to do that with. Would you consider that a reasonable accommodation? Well, the court is suggesting that it's unlikely to find that that's a reasonable accommodation. That in that case, it was a rural post office. There was only sometimes four employees there. And it's very difficult to allow someone to get a Sunday off when you're in that kind of atmosphere. And the employer tried to help people swap shifts. The supervisor himself did some Sunday deliveries to alleviate the burden on this employee. But in that kind of environment, simply couldn't, without hiring a new person, completely accommodate the interests of the employee. So that's the context of the case that's before the court on this term. And most commentators think the court is going to find that that either is simply an unreasonable accommodation, that the employer would have had to mandate that another employee 
take over the Sunday duties or hire a part-time employee in order to ensure to accommodate the religious interests of this one employee. So is the court likely to raise the standard, the burden on the employer? I think the court is is for sure going to say that in order to satisfy Title VII, the employer must make at least uh, substantial efforts to accommodate the interests of the employee and that an undue burden arises only if there is a significant impact upon the employer when viewed in terms of financial or organizational or other kinds of employment costs. But the second question, which is embedded in that, is whether in thinking about those costs, can an employer take into account seniority? Can the employer take into account fairness to the other employees? And that's a tricky question, and the court may create more divisive workplaces, which is something we don't need right now, by saying that we're going to elevate one person's religious interests over somebody else's family interests, somebody else's interest in taking care of sick kids, somebody else's different religious interests, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes a real sort of potential powder keg at the office if an employer has to go to great length to accommodate only religious interests as opposed to those of family and so forth. So the plaintiff is advocating a standard more like that in the American with Disabilities Act. What standard is that? Well, standard is that you have to make reasonable efforts to accommodate any kind of disability in the workplace in order to be inclusive. Um, And that's the standard that's been followed for a while. And, And I think that the idea of taking reasonable efforts to accommodate is really what the test is all about. I think the Harrison court just articulated it perhaps uh, poorly. Uh, And I think that if it's just a reasonable accommodation, that's fine. The question is, what is a reasonable accommodation? And do you have to, in the question of the Americans with Disability Act, do you have to make a new kind of duties? Do you have to alter duties? Do you have to buy technology? To what extent do you have to buy new technology to help somebody adapt? And so in the religion case, the question again will be similar. It will be, what is a reasonable accommodation? Changing shifts? Maybe. Hiring part-time personnel? Maybe. Do you have to ignore collective bargaining agreements on seniority? So those are some unanswered questions that the court probably will give us guidance on in deciding this upcoming case. Employers need that guidance. The plaintiff's being represented by a religious public interest group, First Liberty Institute, and it's also taken on similar federal cases. One involves a suit filed against CVS on behalf of a Christian nurse who allegedly refused to prescribe contraceptive or abortifacient drugs because of her faith. That seems to go much further than this case involving the letter carrier, because anytime a woman comes in requesting contraceptive advice, etc., you have to have a totally different nurse helping her. Right, and so in that case, the question is, you know, what, what's the personnel situation in the office? Are there many people so it's not too difficult to have someone say, well, you know, you have to go to counter three to ask uh, this, or they say, just a minute, I'll go get somebody to help you. Right? If that's the answer, then the accommodation would be reasonable. But if it goes to the question of having to hire somebody else, um, if it goes to the issue of making somebody have a different job entirely, uh, just so this person's religious views can be accommodated is a question. I mean, think about whether a police officer can say, you know, I can't protect the abortion clinic. 
because it's just against my religion. Uh, you'll have to find somebody else uh, to go there or, or somebody who's a firefighter, the same thing. Or think about even worse today, a teacher says, well, it's against my religion to teach anybody who's gay. You'll have to switch, make them switch classes, right? I mean, this kind of religious objection can be articulated in so many diverse ways we haven't even contemplated that you have to draw pretty clear lines about how many steps going backwards can an employer take? Can it undermine educational values? Can it undermine the safety of the citizens? Or do you just is it just a huge economic burden? Or does it make a workforce become unruly because of such divisiveness? So that's why this is, could be a powder keg of a case. Well, this is the court that said it was a high school football coach's constitutional right to pray at the 50-yard line right after games, despite other accommodations that were offered to him. And it's hard to understand how the court could have decided the Bremerton case with those facts. And I think that the court sort of changed the facts a little bit just to make their um, their claim a little bit more uh, palatable. But it's clear that, that this court cares a lot about religious liberty. Some people think they only care about Christian religious liberty, but even if they are much more open than that, the question still is how do you accommodate the religious views of the few to the demands of employment, whether it be the nurse, the uh, firefighter, um, or the postal carrier. Do you have a suggestion for what kind of test the court could use here that wouldn't interfere so much in employer-employee relations? Well, if the court decides to, to discard the Hardison test, but nonetheless to maintain the duty on the employer to make a reasonable accommodation and then just articulate four or five factors so that lower courts can determine what is a reasonable accommodation, I think that would be consistent with the spirit of Title VII. Um, some of those factors would be um, cost. Another factor would be uh, impact on other legitimate interests of employees, such as seniority rights, and then if the court could articulate a couple more of these factors, then I think it would give guidance to the lower courts to sort through these cases and without having too much of a deleterious impact on the workplace. Thanks so much for your insights, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast, slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.